Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man with a reminder that the most limited of all specialists is the well-rounded man. Here is the captain. And I'm well-rounded on all sides. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling my friend. We still have a few coldies from yesterday that remain in the old garage fridge. That's right. cold brew. That's right. Today, we are still sipping on this fine brew from our friends at Hoof Hearted Brewing in beautiful Marengo, Ohio. Zipper Ripper is a double IPA, but not too strong on the old palate because they've smoothed it out with some Amish wildflower honey and subtle hints of other flavors. Garage grade four and a half bottle caps out of five. And let's give some cheers to our good friends for helping us out this week. First up, a big cheers to Mary Jo in Port St. Lucie, Florida. I wonder if Zipper Ripper means that you farted so hard that you blew out the back and the front. And a big We Like Your Jib goes out to Selena in North Carolina. And here's a local cheers to Crystal from Groveport, Ohio. And last but certainly not least, a big shout out and double-fisted cheers to Jessica and Brandon in Amo, Indiana. Everybody we mentioned, they helped us out with the beer fund, and for that, we thank you. Yes, 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 yes. B-W-E-W-R-U-N Beer Run. If you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs, check out our bonus show called Off the Record. It comes out every other week on Apple subscription. So, go to the Apple Podcast app and press subscribe. And Colonel, that is enough. Of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. evidence found in the apartment the apartment where a missing 12 year old Heather Kalorn police are on the scene very early July 15th 1999 trying to figure out what happened and where is this little girl we talked about yesterday captain how the blood that was found on the ground near this apartment was quickly determined to belong to a neighbor Uh, there was a man out and he was bitten by a dog bled that's the blood that they find outside of the apartment they found blood inside the apartment in question but they were going to send it off to be tested to confirm if in fact it was heather's blood we can skip ahead these tests take a little bit of time but just to clue everybody in they do determine yes in fact this was heather's blood now what we don't have is a situation where Dana or Christopher are trying to explain away that blood. Why would we find Heather's blood in your apartment? Of course, she had been staying there for a handful of days before she went missing, but we don't have anybody saying she cut her thumb or there was an accident and she bled at some point at some place in the apartment. And I say some place because the reports about where the blood was found and how much blood was found. It's a little all over the shop there, captain, right? 
There's one report that states that there was a small amount of blood that was found on the couch. There's another report that states that blood was found on the couch, on a floor, a portion of the floor or carpeting, and a portion, uh, some blood was found on one of the walls. Now, I don't want to jump here and make the leap, assuming that that means that a lot of blood was found in the apartment, but it is interesting that this other report states that blood was found in more than one location. This is information that the police are clearly going to want to keep to themselves. And for, for the reason being that they have multiple suspects, you said it yesterday, Christopher Herbert, the man who lives at the apartment had been there for about a year, says he left at 1030 that night. Yeah. Gets back at four, but he changes his story multiple times like a real piece of shit. They're not calling him a suspect and I don't fault police for that. And I, and here's why. I do. What you're getting is you're getting the reporters asking you questions. Yes, you want some information to go out to the public because and until you have evidence that leads you to believe that your missing person is dead or has been killed, you have to work your investigation under the assumption that she is still alive. Now, in this case, you are hoping to not single out a suspect because you do not want to limit the public. You don't want to put blinders on the public and they go, well, they got a suspect. He must've done something with that girl. He, he must've put her somewhere. He must've hid the body somewhere. And, and, and it's only a matter of time until they find the body. And then boom, cuffs go on Christopher Herbert. You don't want to lock yourself into that. Now, what you are getting is those reporters saying, uh, what did the people that live at the apartment tell you? Oh, well, Christopher Herbert, he's got uh, conflicting stories. Right. Is he a suspect? No, he's not a suspect at this time. Yeah, but this is this is why I have a problem. Because you can make the statement that everyone is a suspect at this time. So you're not singling him out, you're not but you're not eliminating him. And I think just like you said, well, you don't if you single him out, then maybe you don't get as much cooperation, but I think once you state, well, at this time, he's not a suspect. Well, what if there's pieces of evidence? Uh, people saw something at the apartment and they're like, well, he's not a suspect. So even though I saw this thing, or even though I know this information about Christopher, I'm not going to come forward. So I, I do think it has the reverse effect as well. I think you're right. And I again, though, I think it goes back to the idea that if she were to be being held by somebody else or somebody else is responsible. You need that information too, from the public. You don't want to put blinders on, on the public. And if you're, unfortunately, if you're law enforcement, you can't control what the reporter puts in their article. You can, you can answer their questions to the best of your ability. Right. And they write the article. Um, so but I just want to remind everybody too, we don't just have a missing girl, but we do have, a missing item that that comforter exactly. missing. I, I do think is very important. Well, and not just that missing item. Here's what's weird too. Remember we talked about Mike Mason. So what has been determined is that both Christopher Herbert and Mike Mason had drug, a drug habit, a bad, a pretty bad drug habit. Not only that, they're manufacturing methamphetamine. So we know this from Christopher Herbert's statements to police, we know this from, frankly, their their police record 
Both of these guys had had run-ins with the law prior. Both have had run-ins with the law after the fact, after Heather went missing. And we know that they both had access to that garage. It's been even reported that it's a garage that they shared. In fairness to these two, we should be clear that there could be other people that shared that garage with the with Mason and Herbert. You never trust anybody that shares a garage. <laughs> you trust no one. That's right. The thing here is we know that they found proof that methamphetamine was being manufactured in that garage that these two shared. So very quickly, the concern and the belief of police is a couple things. They state, and and you will like this, Captain, they won't name anybody, but after a few weeks goes by, they do say, hey, we got we got some suspects. We they they don't give an exact number. They say we've got several suspects. But they are clear that we have basically a handful of people that we are looking at in this situation. And we feel very strongly that the person or persons responsible is in this group, in this circle of people that we are are considering, that we are monitoring. They even say that they are monitoring a few of their suspects. We know that police were concerned about a couple things. So there could be any number of reasons why Heather was taken. And they are stating very quickly in this investigation, foul play. We have evidence to believe that there's foul play. What is our evidence? The blood. The blood comes back, and yes, it does belong to Heather. It's not explained away. When did that blood make it onto the carpet, the couch, or the wall? We don't know. But as far as Herbert in... Madden, the two that occupy the apartment are concerned. It wasn't there when they left Madden at 10 at 10 p.m. and then Christopher at 10.30 p.m. Yeah, my issue with the mom having a relationship with Christopher and you said, well, this is not just a, a male, that she, uh, unknown male to the 12-year-old, but you're more likely, uh, a 12-year-old girl is more likely to be sexually assaulted or sexually abused by a, a, a male that she knows. And I just feel like it's not, I wouldn't feel comfortable with my 12 year old daughter being alone in an apartment at night with this man that again is a known drug user, known drug seller, known drug maker. Right. But you're making the assumption that she knew th- about the drug use. We can't say that for certain. What I can say 100% is, in agreement with you is I don't feel comfortable about any of this situation minus the drugs as a parent. The, the, the drugs is just the, the icing on the cake of no, you're not staying over there. Sorry. I'm not, I, but I don't want to spend the remainder of the episode blaming the mother because she made, she made a bad decision in my mind. She made a bad, poor choice, but that there's doesn't mean she's a murderer and there's no, there's never, ever been anybody in law enforcement to even suggest or hint that Christine, the mother is a person of interest in the disappearance of her daughter. Right. So whatever happened, according to law enforcement, whatever happened to Heather Kalorn happened between 10 PM and 4 AM that night. And it took, took place. Whatever led to her disappearance took place. It started in the apartment and we, they're saying that because of the blood that they found. Now, 
Remember, they knocked on Mike Mason's door that that morning. Old Mike Mason. They talk to him. They question him briefly, and then they send him to go pick up Dana, Dana Madden from work. Now, he tells police at some point, I actually believe that it was that morning. There, he goes out and starts searching with Christopher Herbert, and as the other officers are arriving. So now you have Herbert, neighbors, and police all actively searching together this small apartment complex. This is when they discover the paraphernalia in the garage. But on this same morning, we have a, a weird statement by Mike Mason who says, yes, I've been in the apartment many times. I've, I know Heather hung out with Heather, uh, you know, hung out with the couple when they're in the presence of Heather. And he says, oh, by the way, the tow chains to my vehicle, they're missing. And I'm going to assume that the, he, he's stating this while they're searching the garage. He does say, though, that, you know, maybe somebody stole them and used them to dispose of the girl in the river. He says that's his concern. Well, so now we have a missing 12-year-old. We have a missing comforter. And now this neighbor that is sharing this garage is saying that his tow chains for his vehicle are missing. And this, then, is not, this is not a good sign. No. And, and what's weird, though, too, is we have, a, you're right. They, they have not an everyone's a suspect situation, but they have a handful of suspects. And the problem is we end up with a list of named suspects and unnamed suspects. So I had mentioned yesterday that there was a fourth story, right? A fourth Christopher Herbert story. This one, too, involves some of the details that he gave in some of the other stories. So in this story, he says that he left the apartment at 1030, but this was to go to the garage, the garage that he shared with Mike Mason. He says that there in the garage, he and an unnamed individual were cooking up meth. Now, for reasons that we'll get into, it sounds like this unnamed individual is not Mike Mason. So he says that me and this unnamed individual, we were cooking up meth. And at some point I left the garage, took my vehicle, and I had to go get more supplies. When I got these supplies, I came back to the garage. The guy was gone. Garage sealed up. That's when I went to the apartment, heard my baby crying. I go inside and Heather's gone. Right. He tells police that this man is dating a woman who owns a red BMW. Now, why is that important? He tells police that on at least one occasion, and it sounded to me like this may have happened more than one time, that he had stole items from that BMW that belonged to this man's girlfriend. And he floated out the idea Maybe in some kind of retaliation, like me and this guy and his girlfriend, we don't have the best of relationships. We're known drug users and drug makers. And that he had stole cash and other items from them that maybe in some kind of retaliation, when he went off to go look for items to make more meth, that they took Heather. So... The weird part here, Captain, is even though this man is unnamed to the public, police know who this guy is. Right. 
Police interviewed him. Police interviewed his girlfriend. Police searched their property and the BMW. Yeah, the vehicle. And police said, we found no evidence that Heather was ever in their possession. The apartment complex is small, but a red BMW, especially in this area, would be something that you'd think would stick out like a sore thumb. A big, giant sore thumb. (laughs) But A three-foot-tall sore thumb. A red sore thumb. Swollen. It was swollen. But we don't have other eyewitnesses of this vehicle. And here's the other problem. Police say, remember one of other... One of Christopher's other stories is that he was at the park near the river. I was in a van down by the river. Partying with a friend. And then later that morphs into, well, we might have been making meth there too. Probably doing both. They're probably partying and, you know, we're just having a good old time. Cooking up meth and hanging out and shooting the shit. They speak with that man. What it's hard for us to sort out is Christopher Herbert's, does he have an alibi? I get it that he's told multiple stories to police. But if one of those stories is, hey, I was cooking up meth with this guy who his girlfriend owns a BMW, we were, we were out in the garage, and then I left to go get supplies. And look, it's difficult to believe that he would be gone for an extended period of time to get supplies, but who who knows what that entails? Well, I've seen Breaking Bad. Okay, so they we know, according to police statements, they spoke to that man, the man that supposedly Chris was in the garage cooking up meth with. And then it is his other story. He's out partying at the park near the river with a guy, an unnamed guy. They speak to this guy. So what I'm getting at here, Captain, is even though he supplied different stories to police, look, if he's cooking up meth or if he's doing drugs at night, it does make sense that the first story he's going to give is, oh, I left to drive somebody home. When I came back hours later, she was gone. Right? It's not uncommon at all that a person who is perfectly innocent of the crime that you're investigating is covering up some other lesser crime in his whereabouts or what he was doing that night yeah but the problem is at some point you have to go okay 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 let me tell you the truth you know right and smoking some crack over here and uh giving hand jobs out well and i don't know what order these stories came out to police but he gave conflicting reports what i'm getting at here captain is (laughs) like (laughs) how you say that i don't know uh what order these four stories came out yeah I, i mean i don't but what what i'm saying here is does he have an alibi mm hmm Because in every one of his stories, he is attempting to provide an alibi, attempting to provide reasons why he is not there. In three of the stories, he gives you another person who he was with for a large portion of that time. And you have spoke to, police have said that they, even though they've not named these individuals, that they spoke to both of these individuals. What I'm getting at, does that mean he has an alibi? Because you know who doesn't have an alibi is Mike Mason. I think it all then becomes determined on how much as law enforcement do you believe these other individuals and i think just in this situation if i'm investigating the disappearance of a 12 year old girl and look she needs to be tested she needs to take insulin daily by the second or third day i i I hate to say this but you're going to start assuming the worst she's an endangered missing but when you're talking to all these individuals they all become suspects Mm -hmm. And because of their drug use, I just don't know how much I can believe them at all. Right. 
I'm going to need some more concrete evidence. So if you tell me you went to go get supplies, I need a receipt. Oh, I can't find one. You know, if you say you're with this individual, I, I need more than his word. No, I get that. But what, I, what I'm also trying to, to focus in on here is... I mean, law enforcement could have that other piece of evidence. Well, exactly. Yeah. But but that's what I'm saying. It's hard for us to sort out what's going on because we don't know if Herbert has an alibi. If Herbert has an alibi, so so the way that the case stands today is this. Police say they they basically believe that they know who did it, that they once had several suspects. Now they have a prime suspect, an unnamed prime suspect, unnamed to the public. Right. And their prime suspect is an individual that they have some evidence against that they gave a polygraph test to, and this individual failed the polygraph test. That's as much information as they've given about their prime suspect. What I'm trying to point out here, though, is, yes, I get that they're drug users. Yes, I get that they're drug makers and likely drug sellers as well. What I'm saying, though, is if you if you receive two different stories from one individual that, oh, I was in the garage hanging out with this one dude, and then the other version of that same story, I'm in the park hanging out with this other dude. And you identify those people and you spoke to both of them. What happened? Did both of them tell you that he was hanging out with them? Because right. that couldn't have happened. It or can't be both happening at the same time. Or did one say, I don't know why. Yes, I know Christopher Herbert. Yes, we're friends. We hang out. Uh, he Maybe he asked me to cover for him, but no, I didn't see him that night. I'm trying to sort out here if he has an alibi. The reason being because well, I don't know. I'm not we don't, law enforcement. We don't need well. They, law enforcement doesn't know either. They would have if they knew who killed Heather Kalorn. We'd be having a whole different story here today. Well, again, we know in a lot of cases the law enforcement knows. They just can't can't prove it. And I and could you imagine not not you know this is where I feel bad horrible i feel awful for the mother because as she's learning this information again we we don't know how much uh, i look i would i would assume that if they're so deep into drugs that they're making meth but this could be a, a new revelation in his life oh i just had a child i need to make more money this is my dumbass plan mm -hmm. is to cook up some meth so that could be a, a new revelation in, in her friend's life. But you're law enforcement. You're looking for this 12-year-old girl. You show up to the scene. Now everybody you're talking to has conflicting stories, and they're all involved in drugs on some level. You can't be feeling good about the outcome of this situation. No, no. And police have been clear very early on. They've stated a few things. So one, they say foul play was certainly involved in the abduction of this girl. She didn't walk off on her own Two, this is, we're treating this as a homicide, even though we don't have a body. And three, we believe whoever is responsible knew Heather, Heather knew them, or the person has a direct tie to that apartment to where Heather was that night. The, the reason why I'm trying to sort out this Christopher Herbert alibi portion is because it doesn't have to be a single individual that's responsible for what happened to Heather or where she may be found. 
because the problem is you have Mike Mason, who could be perfectly innocent, but he does not have an alibi. Christopher Herbert provides several different stories, but Mike Mason, if he's innocent, he doesn't need it. It doesn't matter if he's home alone by himself from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. It doesn't look so good, but the, the issue I have with some of the stories is this. Herbert obviously has access to that apartment. Mike Mason has been in that apartment and knows Heather. So he fits into the mold of what they are say, stating is the person they are looking for, is the suspect. Does he have access to get into that apartment without Christopher Herbert being there? Right, because he has access to the garage. Would Heather that, let right? Yeah, would Heather let him in? Does he have a key to the apartment? There was no forced entry, no signs of forced entry into the apartment that night. Right. We know that police vetted the BMW people and they don't seem to be so interested in them. So where I think the case sits is one of two things, either Mike Mason or Christopher Herbert, or the two of them together. Right. You you grab the girl, and I'll be in the car. And Because it's a little weird that two of the four stories that Christopher Herbert gives says that he's at a park that is near the river. And then the flip of that is you talk to Mike Mason, and he says, oh, my, my toe chains are missing. Uh, I'm worried that somebody m- might have used them to, to dispose of of." the girl in the river. Okay. So we got two people both referencing the river. I'm going to say something and and maybe you will pick up what I'm putting down. I almost lean towards an outside individual. and, And here's why we have a comforter missing. If, if it was Christopher killing his wife, and he put her body in the comforter, he doesn't have to explain the missing comforter away to anybody. Law enforcement shows up. They don't know the comforter's missing. But this 12-year-old girl, something happens. He wraps her up in the comforter. Now he's going to have to explain this away to his wife. But if it's an outside source, then they just they just use whatever. You just would kind of use whatever is just around and you want to, you want to give a shit if that makes any sense. Right. You would just grab what's there to wrap up the, the package to remove it from the apartment. Yeah. I'm just saying if it was your apartment and you know, your wife is coming home, you might take a second to think a little bit more about how you're going to dispose of this body. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. I do pick up what you're putting down, but I don't know that that points to, to innocence for, Herbert, or I, I think the way that this probably goes down, Captain, is that they they're canvassing the area. This neighbor tells the story of, "Hey, I, I witnessed this. This is what I saw." And then now police are going, "Okay, it wasn't obvious that anything was missing from the apartment other than Heather, but we have this statement from the neighbors, and now you have potentially have Dana and Christopher going, "Oh yeah, we are missing a blanket, or we are missing a comforter." Uh, now, now that you, you asked that question that there was a similar blanket or comforter that was found in a park. I had a hard time tracking down when it was discovered. Right. It sounds like it was fairly close to the time that Heather went missing. That the thing though, is police were never able to 
100% determine if that comforter came from the apartment. So uh, they they recover this comforter or blanket. It's it's often described as a blanket. And what was missing from the apartment is often described as a comforter. But from my understanding, they showed this to Dana Madden, and she was unable to identify it 100% as being the, the missing item from their apartment. So that seemed, that's a little inconclusive. But it's hard to believe her, too, because she would have an agenda on why she wouldn't want to cooperate with law enforcement. You're exactly right. But what we do have at one of our crime scenes is Heather's blood. And you would think that if she was immediately bloodied, dead, or sleeping, unconscious, whatever, I don't believe she'd be sleeping. Unconscious would be a better term. And then removed in a, in a comforter used to remove her from the apartment, as we said with the potential eyewitness. Right. I would think that police might not need to ask Dana if this is your comforter or blanket if they found blood or Heather's blood on that. So it sounds like no blood on the on this item, and that's why we need the owner or one of the owners to potentially identify it. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. All right, we are back. Back to our story of a missing 12-year-old with a bunch of suspects that are piles of shit. Well, and you know what? And I'm not going to put anything on the St. Louis, Missouri police would be remiss if we didn't point out that almost a thousand homicide and missing persons cases have gone unsolved in St. Louis since 1980. This is according to their own statistics. That's too many. Um, almost 30 cold cases from the eighties and the nineties have been solved by the department. This in 2021, thanks to the application of modern forensic tech techniques and evidence. Now we say that, and that was my concern at first with this case, because you can see why this is a complicated case. You have people telling different stories. You have two individuals that it looks like on the surface have no alibi. I think they have a a better understanding of Christopher Herber and where he was and what he was up to that night than we do. 100%. I believe that. Right. 
this case, man, they've worked this case really good. They put a lot of effort into this case. Some things that they did really smart. Uh, they did bring in other agencies to assist. What I find, you know, through looking into these cases every every week is that if you have a criminal with a level of sophistication, makes the crime a lot harder to solve, right, for law enforcement. But it also seems like if the suspects are such dumbasses that that makes the, the case even more complex. Does that make any sense? It's interesting you say that because more than one occasion I've heard a detective say, well, not the same detective, but different, different detectives right. in different situations say he's too dumb to lie. He's too dumb to not tell us the truth. Right. And that comes with experience. I can't explain that statement, but I can I could tell by the the individual telling me that by the sound of their voice, by the look on their face, they believed it. Let's fast forward about two and a half years after Heather goes missing. So there were remains found in a creek near St. Louis in March of 2002. Mm. Police were hopeful that these might be the remains of Heather Kalorn. It sounds like they very quickly, within a, a day or two, were able to determine that no that was not the remains of Heather. Then the following month, in April of 2002, police went on record stating this was the first time that I saw this. This is the first time they come out and say, you know what? We're pretty certain we know who did this. We just need some evidence. We, we need a little more evidence. And here's the problem. When you talk about a homicide investigation, even in 2023, uh, so even more importantly, in 99, 2000, 2001, and 2002, you don't have a body. It gets very difficult to bring forth charges. Now, we talked about the blood in that apartment. We have seen and we have covered cases, right, Captain, where you do not have the actual remains. Right. But you have enough blood at your crime scene where a medical expert can come in and say, this amount of lost blood, this person was killed here. You may, and it belongs to this person. This person was killed. You're looking for a body. You can't find it, but I can scientifically prove that this person is no longer with us. And therefore you can bring up murder charges. So when we question the amount of blood, one thing we do know is it was not enough that was found in the apartment for someone to come forward, a medical expert to tell us that Heather was killed in that apartment. Yeah, so in simple terms, you don't have the evidence of the victim's body, but you have evidence that there was a murder. They have evidence of foul play. And then they, this is what's interesting. I think they were really hoping that somebody would crack, right? Uh -huh. Maybe not the killer. Maybe not the person 100% responsible. That somebody on crack might crack. But somebody that knows the true story. Maybe they were told this by the perpetrator. Maybe they witnessed something. Maybe they participated in something. But they wanted to keep the heat. The heat was hot. They wanted to keep it turned up. It's crank it up to 11. Tub. Yeah. And so they announced this to the public, right? Mm -hmm. You can see the efforts that in this, this, as George W. Bush would say, the strategery involved. <laughs> March of 20. O two body found that was, if it would have been Heather, that would have advanced their case. Turns out not to be Heather. 
here's our opportunity, right? Here's if there's some if the killer is out there and is paying attention to this case or his friends or anybody that may have helped him are paying attention to this case, well they're all going to get a little nervous because now the body's been found. After a couple of days it's determined it's not Heather. So what do we do? Use that strategy and come out within 30 days and tell the newspapers, yeah, we know who did this. We just need a little more evidence. Keep the heat cranked up to 11. Mm -hmm. You sit back and you wait to see if somebody comes out to tell you a story, tell you something you didn't know or present some evidence to you. It'd be a great time to bring people back in for even just simple questioning. I'm sure that they did that because here's what happened next. Whatever they were looking for, whatever they were hoping to get led to Heather's body or told the story of where she was disposed of. That likely didn't happen. Keep the heat cranked up to 11, right? The following month, they bring in the FBI. FBI, come in and take a look at this case. Conduct your own independent investigation. We will supply you with everything we have. And then tell us what you think happened. So the FBI comes in, they examine everything. They put together an offender profile. They, they profile the whole, the whole case, the whole scenario. None of this information other than the FBI being brought in and conducting their own independent investigation is released to the public. So we don't know what their findings were. We don't know what kind of profile they came up with, but what I can sit here and say, and you know, this captain just as well as I do We've seen this in dozens of cases. Police are pretty certain that they know what happened. A couple years go by. They're not able to close the case or make an arrest. You bring in an independent investigation, somebody like the FBI or BCI, or we've seen it with GBI and all the other eyes that are out there. Yeah. Or the MFFBI. Yeah. As many eyes as you can put on the case, right? And we're not talking about eyeballs. We're talking about the, the letter I. I'd just love to be questioning somebody and go, you know what we just did? We just brought in the MF FBI. Yeah. You'd be going, what? The motherfucking FBI. And we're starting, just so you know, we're starting up the TCGI, <laughs> True Crime Garage Investigations. Yeah. Um, and we're cheap. So if, dirt cheap. We work for beer. Uh, you bring in the FBI. They conduct their own investigation. You don't release any of that information to the public. And you know why? And we've seen this a dozen of times. We've been told this from other investigators. We brought in the FBI on our case. You don't need to tell the public anything because guess what happened? They came to the same conclusion that they, the, the police came to. We don't need to release the offender profile because they came to the same conclusion that we did. And I'm certain that this has happened in this case. And I think that really... You could probably narrow down your suspects to two or three people. It's Christopher Herbert. It's Mike Mason or an unknown individual. And it could be more than one person within that group of three. We could have two or three people who were responsible. Who's to say that Christopher Herbert didn't have a bunch, have Mike Mason and a friend over and they decided to just party at the house. Right. Or they're in the garage cooking up meth, and then Heather stumbles onto this, and and now we feel like we have something we got to cover up. Do we know if the couple is still together? I don't think so. Um, they weren't married at the time, and the the 
the only thing that I have to base that off of captain is that Christopher Herbert spent a good amount of time in, in and out of prison. So I'm guessing that holding down a relationship is going to be a little difficult when you, when you locked up. Yeah. Um, we also know that Mike Mason has spent a good deal of time in prison as well. Oh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah. And so th- what, what's interesting though, is Mike Mason is not shy to talk to police or even the media about this case. Now that doesn't, that doesn't sway me either way on his innocence or guilt. Yeah. Stuff like that to me, it's like, that could mean everything or nothing. Exactly. You're exactly right. I hope it didn't come off that I was just harping on Heather's mother, but I do know that there's been times that Heather's mother has confronted these individuals. <laughs> yes. Because because when you're not getting a straight story, you'd obviously become more suspicious and you're leaving your daughter in the hands of two individuals that you thought were your friends. You thought that she would be safe over there. And obviously she wasn't. Yeah. So this is a, this is one of the more fun parts of the story, I guess is a really dumb way for me to describe it, but there you have it. Christine was actually arrested and this was a handful of months after Heather went missing. And Christine firmly believed, I'm guessing that she had a good idea or, or had a, a very strong theory, but a large portion of whatever it is that she believed, it's unclear of who she thought was 100% responsible, but it's very clear that she believed that Dana Madden, her friend that, that police again confirmed that she was at work that night, arrived on time. She believed that her friend Dana Madden knew more than what Dana was telling to police and telling to Christine. Right. And this infuriated her. This is a conversation she she attempted to have many times with her friend Dana. Clearly, she didn't think she was getting the information that she deserved or, or, or should be told. And so she goes to Dana's place of work at the gas station one night with a baseball bat, demanding to know what happened to her daughter. And Dana locks herself in a back room in the back room so that Christine can't get to her calls police. And then Christine's arrested and this for, you know, menacing or, or public endangerment, something of the public. Um, I, I don't know exactly what the charge was, but we know that she was arrested and charged with something. Now, unfortunately, Christine's no longer with us. She, she died in her fifties, not knowing what happened to her daughter, Heather. She did work. You can see if you go back through all of the media stuff, she spent her remaining days trying to figure out what happened to her daughter. She, she spent a lot of time working with other foundations, the class foundation, the poly class foundation out of California, I believe. But we see this in a lot of cases. It's a, you know, not knowing and feeling possibly responsible and knowing that there's people out there that possibly have these answers. It's like a cancer. And we, we see it in a lot of cases, whether the, the, the victim is found or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Benet Ramsey, mother dies young. This, in this case, mother dies young. In, in uh, Amy Mihalovic case, mother dies young. It's, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's horrible. And it's just another victim in this crime. 
Yeah, and I think where the case stands today, Captain, we're talking about Dana Madden's alibi confirmed, verified by police. She was working that night. And police seem to firmly believe that Heather was alive and well at 10 p.m. on the 14th and that something happened to Heather between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. on the 15th. Christopher Herbert, again, for reasons we've discussed at, at length, it's very difficult to nail down what the true story is. We do know that that they did speak with two of the individuals separately that he was supposedly with that night. It would be very interesting to know if either of them confirmed or denied being with Christopher Herbert that night. It'd be interesting if both of them confirmed to be with Christopher Herbert that night, because if you're supposed to be in different places at the same time with the same person, guess what? Your two alibis now become zero alibis. Yeah. Normally I have some hope a case will get solved, but I think in this one, because of the, the drug use, the time of the people of interest, you know, time spent in prison, chances of them finding the, the, the remains, I, I I just think uh, I don't have a lot of hope for this one unless somebody agree. comes forward, unless somebody knows something of substance, something that they can prove to police, then I, I just don't have a lot of hope in this one. Well, and I was all but determined to show up at the garage today here, hang out with you, Captain, jump up on my giant soapbox and scream it from the top of the mountains that I think that, that Christopher Herbert is suspect a number one or he and Mason, something happened there. There's a very likelihood that whoever's responsible did not intend to kill Heather Kalorn, that something happened and they, they took measures to dispose of the body afterwards. There, there's a likelihood that that's a possibility. There's a likelihood that somebody did intend to kill her. It's it's difficult to say based off of the evidence, but I was determined to come in here and say, you know what? I think the most likely scenario is that, that Christopher Herbert and Mike Mason did this together. Got to give a big shout out here, Captain, to Steven Pacheco, who does the Trace Evidence podcast. There's been some storytelling and, and some some uh, coverage of this case outside of St. Louis as far as YouTube goes. But as far as podcasts go, Trace Evidence was the only one that I could find that covered it at length. He always does a good job over there. He pointed out something that really kind of it didn't totally squash my thought, my theory that maybe the two of them did it together because the, the, the thing that I have a hard time getting past is that Christopher Herbert never says he's with Mike Mason, yet he's at a park near the Mississippi River Bank, near the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. And then Mike Mason tells police, oh, my toe chains are moving. I'm worried that somebody used these chains to weight down the girl and, and dispose of her in the Mississippi River. Like, it seems, I get it that the river's right there, but it seems a little weird that these two guys would have this one element in both of their stories separately. And so I wondered if maybe one helped the other with a problem. Oh, I got the, you know, this happened, this happened. I didn't mean for it to happen. Now I got to get rid of this. Uh -huh. 
if something like that occurred. And again, Trace Evidence, Stephen Pacheco doesn't completely squash my theory, but brings up a good, a good and, and impressive observation. You got two guys that are in and out of prison on lesser charges, some of them facing years because they're repeat offenders. It would make a whole lot of sense that that person A would turn on person B for a plea bargain in some other lesser crime and say, look, right. law enforcement, if you can if you can help me out, I can help you out. Well, that's a that that's a very intelligent point to point out. The other thing, too, when we're talking about media coverage, it, this is not necessarily in Heather Kalorn's case, but if you start digging into this case, there unfortunately is a lot or were a lot in a period of 10 years in this greater St. Louis area of children going missing. And there, many of these stories are much different than the Heather Kalorn case. Heather Kalorn was at that apartment. Whatever happened to her happened. It started in that apartment where she ended up. We don't know, but a lot of these other kids were abducted while they were walking home, getting off the school bus, out riding a bike. And unfortunately it appears that there was probably about three different child killer, child abductor offenders operating in this area within about a 10 to 20 year time period. So in some weird way, she kind of becomes just another face on a milk carton where they cover these stories in the newspaper year after year. And you see her face, her name, the details of her case of Heather's case piled on three, four, five other cases that were still outstanding. And one of those cases was a young girl by the name of Angie Hausman and Angie Hausman's case is weird when you look into it, captain, because it's like they, her case went unsolved for so long and it was such a mystery for so long that anytime another kid came up missing, they investigated the possibility if Angie Hausman's case was related to the latest missing kids case. Right. And that too was true with Heather Kalorn. We know 100% that no, that's not the situation. I shouldn't say 100%. Let's go with 98%. But we have police telling us in Heather Kalorn's case, her, the person responsible, knew Heather. Heather knew them. In Angie Hausman's case, they were able to finally solve her case using DNA evidence. And the person responsible for that was Earl Webster Cox who was actually serving life in prison when they connected him to the Angie Hausman case many, many years later. Now, if you want to learn more about that case, there's a great uh, coverage on the Angie Hausman case, and that was on the case with Paula Zahn, the TV show, season 23, episode 7, which aired in September of 2021. Yeah, one of the things that is very interesting, and you have to applaud police for this, is that they spent time monitoring these individuals uh, for a time period to try to solve this case. Yes, an extended period of time. That that cost a lot of money, man hours, and resources to monitor yeah. individuals. So unfortunately, Captain, and unfortunately, Garage listeners, Heather's disappearance remains unsolved, 
and foul play is strongly suspected. As the captain pointed out, there's been a group of people, a group of suspects over the years who have been monitored in connection to Heather's disappearance, but no one has been officially labeled as a suspect. We do have police saying that they believe they have a prime suspect and that their prime suspect they have some evidence against. And one piece they believe is that that this individual failed a polygraph examination. No arrests have been made in this case. Heather, who disappeared while babysitting for the infant daughter of family friends, Christopher Herbert and Dana Madden, she's, of course, abducted sometime during the night or early morning hours. This is what police have told us, and this is where the case stands to this day. This is a case that I think that if they find the right evidence that we might see this case advance sometime soon, we know that we are seeing success coming out of the St. Louis area on a lot of their cold cases. Remember, in 2021, they solved 30 of their cold cases in that year alone. I'm hoping that Heather's case can be one that's solved this year. I want to thank you so much for donating to the Beer Fund, for listening to the show, for sharing and telling friends and families about the True Crime Garage flying garage ship. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading? This week, it's a little self-serving here, Captain, but I'm going to recommend my book, The Delphi Murders, The Quest to Find the Man on the Bridge. The reason why, we got a book signing coming up this Saturday at Hoof Hearted in Marengo, Ohio. Join me there if you can from 2 to 4 p.m. on Saturday. I'll be selling and signing books. If you already have one, just bring it with you, and we will have a beer and a laugh together. Hope to see as many people there as possible. That's this Saturday from 2 to 4 at Hoof Hearted in Marengo, Ohio. Yeah, and if you need some lighter reading, check out my book, Whoever Smelt It, Dealt It. You can find that on Amazon Prime. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter.